This is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to episode 34 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Acts of Sacrifice. Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you. you were gonna save that according to the show notes at first i clapped my hands over my mouth and my nose and just like cut off my entire airflow because i didn't want to laugh into the microphone and then i couldn't breathe so i just had to let go and laugh. <laughs> well you know you know it, it's, it's 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 the moment no, no talking you know? yet i'm still laughing <laughs> Okay, I think I've collected myself now. I'm 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 glad. I'm glad because we've got a podcast to do. It's a very serious podcast about a very oh, serious really? matter. After that, <laughs> acts don't buy of, it. Acts of sacrifice is a super important, weighty episode in the annals of Babylon Five history. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I've got my game face on now. I'm I'm with you, Chip. Mm-hmm. I. Nope. You okay? Okay. I make this promise to you. I make this promise to our listeners. We will discuss and dissect the Ivanova dance in great detail. But not now, because there's so much more to talk about. This one is remembered. The Ivanova dance is actually remembered. It blew up the internets back in the day. If people ask you about the episode Acts of Sacrifice, they or if you ask them about the episode, they will stare blankly back at you. And then you mentioned the Ivanova Dance. And if you are a Babylon 5 fan, you know what the Ivanova Dance is. We will, in this episode of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, we will ask the big question. Was the Ivanova Dance really all that? And I have (laughs) no doubt... asking the tough questions. I have Mm -hmm. no doubt that my colleagues on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, have opinions on this subject. Boy, I can tell they're holding their fire. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to ruin this the, the somber sort of serious mood that you've created here by thinking about it too much. So I'm just I'm just holding it all in and I'm I'm happy to talk about the other stuff first. Awesome. All righty then. Uh so Acts of Sacrifice episode 34 of the B5 Audio Guide podcast. You might want to know a couple of things about the Babylon 5 universe. If this is your first entry into Babylon 5, Oh, boy. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But, uh, you know, you actually don't need to know that much about Babylon 5 to appreciate this episode, to understand what's going on other than this. Babylon 5 is a United Nations in space trying to keep the peace, and they're not doing such a good job of it, really. Two of the races with longstanding grudges, the Narn and the Centauri, they recently declared war. That's it. That's everything you need to know in this episode. After a disastrous space battle in which a Narn cruiser is destroyed, rescuing a civilian transport from the Centauri, Narn Ambassador Jakar makes the rounds, asking the Earth Alliance and Minbari for help. Here's the problem. He spent the last one and a half seasons of the show scheming and flexing Narn muscle, so the Narn aren't 
obviously helpless victims here. And Earth and Minbar have both been taken over by reactionary isolationist governments. So even as Jakar risks his life to assert his authority and keep a lid on Narn attacks on Centauri and the station, trying to make it easier for the other governments to help him, all Captain Sheridan and Ambassador Delin can offer him are secret food supplies and limited refugee transport. This is not what the Narn need right now. Meanwhile, representatives of a little-known advanced race called the Lumadi come to the station to consider starting relations relations, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, with the Earth Alliance. Sheridan delegates the diplomatic chore to Ivanova, who finds that, A, the only thing that impresses the Lumati is how B5 and the Earth Alliance mistreat their underclass in Down Below, and, B, the Lumati formalize their diplomatic agreements through ritual sex. One wonders how Sheridan would have handled this, but Ivanova takes advantage of how little the Lumati know about human courting habits. Boom, shabba-lubba-lubba. And that is Acts of Sacrifice. There's some other things that are going on with everybody's favorite uh, Centauri ambassador and all that. But those are the high points, such as they are. Um, let's start out with just uh, some uh, brief general reactions from Shannon and Erica about Acts of Sacrifice. Well, you know, it's funny that you you talk about how... How the dance sort of overshadows everything else in this episode. And I think that's true because, you know me, I never remember what the titles refer to. Uh, so when when we were about to start this one, I told Stephen, I was like, I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in this episode. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll remember as soon as it gets started. Um, but I really didn't know. And yep, as soon as it got started and they were talking about the Lumati and, and, uh, and, uh, Sheridan's telling Ivanova, oh, it's more, you know, learning the fine art of diplomacy. And I was like, oh, it's this episode. And then it continued to play out. And I realized, holy crap, this is actually a really good episode. Some serious stuff happens. There are some amazing scenes that just hit me right where I live, get me in the heart. And I just, it, it seems such a shame that that one little bit that's so goofball overshadows everything else in my memory. So I, from now on, I'm going to make it a point to remember Acts of Sacrifice as a touching and important story and try to forget about the uh, the other part. Regard- and then I'm not even saying whether I liked it or not. I just think that, that the fact that it stands out so strongly is it, it's kind of heartbreaking to me because there's so much good stuff in this story. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same wavelength. Um, I was actually dreading this one slightly because yes I remember the Ivanova dance as, as being part of it and given how Stephen reacted the last time there was some female-centered funny humor going on with Delenn's bad hair day I was a little <laughs> terrified to learn what he thought of this so I was hold kind of the fire hold the, the fire but yeah go, you know, kind of dreading you know dreading that but Erica's right there's a re- there's a lot of really good stuff in here uh, that supports the overall story arc that moves, you know, we've been talking about the Narn Centauri War in the background for an episode or two. And now here it is back in full force showing the effects, the ripple effects that it's causing on a station that is supposed to be neutral territory. And yeah, there, there's a lot of good stuff in here to talk about. Um, but you know, it, it kind of gets overshadowed with uh, one really goofy moment. Yeah, well, let's 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 talk about that because that really is sort of the serious arc-heavy piece of this episode. Um, the Narn and Centauri went to war just a few short episodes ago, and 
the station continues to feel different. The show continues to feel different. Um, it looks like Babylon 5 is itself a powder keg. And um, I guess the first question that I want to ask the two of you is how different, uh, you know, we keep checking in on how, you know, the, sh- the show is completely changed. This isn't a this isn't a pivot point in the ep- in the series, but. Doesn't the station feel a little darker and a little more dangerous now? And doesn't the show feel that way, too? One hundred percent. I that was one of the things I thought about, actually, when watching this episode was just that that scene after scene, you know, going back and forth from Londo and Jakar and and the random Narns and, and Centauri on the station. It just it. It's not, you're right, It's it wasn't a pivot point episode. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, things are changing. It really felt like things have changed. That change is now in the past. And we are seeing, you know, the, the ramifications uh, and the consequences of those changes playing out. And just, it seems like there's there's been a subtle or maybe even not so subtle shift in mood in general of the, the whole show. So, you know, even though we do still get some of the, the silliness, there are I would say the the fundamental foundation of the show of Babylon 5 seems to me to be much more somber at this point. Yeah, it's um, basically everything is in a ringer and the ringer is tightening. And we're seeing um, it affect, you know, pretty much all across the entire station, you know, not just Jakar trying to control his people as they are brewing for a fight, brewing to uh, defend themselves uh, among some of the Centauri. And we see the fallout of Londo's decisions, um, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit more in a minute. Um, But even, you know, the other ambassadors, Delenn is just a wreck in a lot of this episode because she cannot do what she would like to do. And... She has no way to uh, back up any play that she makes unless it's secretly. Uh, And Sheridan is (laughs) going through his trial by fire for just how much he's going to have to politic uh, in this uh, role as uh, as leading uh, as the leader of Babylon 5. Yeah, let's uh, take a look at our our dramatis personae in this uh, Narn Centauri conflict. And you got to start with Jakar. This is, again... You know, everybody remembers the Ivanova dance, but this is Jakar's episode, and this is a completely new side, and Andreas Katsoulis is playing a completely different character this time around. You know, I don't think, I wouldn't say it's completely different. I think that we have seen the shift starting previously like he's moved in this direction a little bit so i don't feel like because i feel like if if this was completely different it would have caught me off guard and not seemed quite right i think that that you know even we even were seeing hints of it way back when he was talking to um catherine sakai and saying you know not everybody here is who exactly who they appear like we've seen little little bits and pieces of, of sort of wisdom from jakar that that seem a little bit bigger than the the broadly painted villain that he was in much of series one but I do think that, that that sort of transformation has fully bloomed here, and we now see him acting as an actual ambassador who is doing – I mean, I feel like he's always kind of been doing things for the Narn people in general, but this is this is more of a defending the people at large as opposed to just taking back what's ours, and I think that there's a, a distinction there in that he's – before he was filled with braggadocio and just kind of – 
making himself up to be big here he has he's brought down much smaller and is willing to even beg Delenn, which is not a thing that i would have ever expected from jakar before this and i think that 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 more than anything the the willingness to put himself out there the willingness to get himself killed if necessary uh to to try to stop the shenanigans that are happening on the station i i, I just I, I don't think that it was a uh, that fast of a switch i think that it was it was well enough done that when it came to it here that i completely bought it yeah there is one big difference i think the the first thing that we see out of him in this episode that we haven't seen at all you know he 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 freaks out in the coming of shadows understandably so but now that he's calmed down but he is ambassador of a government that is at war and is not doing great in that war as far as we can tell right now he's worried and i don't think we've ever seen him worried before i mean that that sort of you're right that sort of uh grim do you want me to beg delin thing and you know that he will do it if he has to you know but you know it, it's it's going to be this like transaction but he's at he's close to the end of his rope Several times, especially when he's um, dealing with the the other Narn on the station, you know, I know it is difficult, but for right now, we're going to behave ourselves, you know. Yeah, well, what he had a position before as ambassador. Now he has a mission. And I think that's the difference Mm -hmm. that there's a purpose in where in being where he is now that, of course, you know, was not there before because now his people are embroiled in war and there's absolutely no guarantee they can win it. So he's got to do everything he can to try to save as many lives as possible. And again, Shannon, Shannon brings it home with a quip. I love that. He had a he had a position. Now he has a mission. I want that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely put. Um, yeah, he's he's actually making a pitch to try to end the war. He's not making a pitch mm-hmm. to beat the Centauri. When he's making his deals or attempting to make his deals with Sheridan and Delin, he talks about how the Centauri, some of the people in the Centauri government, he assumes, or maybe he knows, aren't completely on board with this war, and anything that would give them pause might stop the war for a while. Now, based on everything that Jakar has said in the series up to this point, he would be perfectly happy to grind the Centauri and turn their bones into flutes for Narn children to play. And, you know, he, he said that he does not like the Centauri. But again, right now, beating the Centauri is not his primary concern. Protecting his people is the bigger concern, which, if you go back to his little conversation with uh, Morden, you know, that really is the only thing that motivates him, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think speaking of, of Morden, uh, Mr. Space Mob and and his mysterious ships, which are really, I think, a big part of why the Centauri are, are doing so well. I don't know if they're actively helping right now, but just the fact that they were able to blow up a couple of a uh, couple of key locations in one fell swoop, thanks to Londo, Um I think that that is why Jakar is so worried. And I wonder if if it was a more even and fair fight. I have to assume that 
Jakar, at least the Jakar that we've seen before, wouldn't be so anxious to stop the war. He might even be, you know, happy to uh, to to go at it if he thought they were evenly matched. But now he is. You're right. He's worried. He's actually scared because he has seen what the opposition force can do, and he may not understand it completely. And he may suspect that there's another player out there. But as far as he's concerned, that player is either out to get the Narn or just siding with the Centauri. And either way, they're screwed. Yeah, um, yeah. I like the point that he makes um, and, uh, to his fellow Narn that when they beat the Centauri off of uh, the Narn homeworld, it was a war of attrition. It was a guerrilla war. They last they outlasted the Centauri. The Centauri didn't have the stomach to uh, keep occupying the territory and the Narn chased them away. Since then, the Narn have been perfectly comfortable being space bullies, um, as we saw in The Gathering, as we saw in Midnight on the Firing Line. Uh, Jakar, not only motivated by sticking it to the Centauri, but they've been beat down and humiliated. Um, it's their turn now. Their, your time has come and gone. It's our time now. He's not making those kinds of statements anymore. Shannon, you were going to say something? Now, I was just going to uh, contrast uh, Jakar's position and attitude at this point uh, with Londo's. Uh, Londo, the one who does know exactly why the Centauri have started so well in this war. And he's d- he's doing everything he can to distance himself from the events now that he's gotten his hands so thoroughly, thoroughly dirty thanks to his association with Morden. He is... You know, doing everything he can. He's dealing with petty little things from petty little businessmen, um, refusing to come to meetings when Sheridan tells him he needs him there. Uh, very quick to take the excuse of, oh, that Centauri guy was trouble. I don't have to worry about anything. Just, you know, do this little poke in Jakar's eye and I'm happy. Um, it the, the contrast between the two, they, they've been sort of an, at contrasting levels and progressions as characters all along and this episode really showcases it. Yeah. You, you sort of feel sorry for Londo at a few moments in this episode, but he's really a dick, isn't he? He is. Right now. You're right. I do. There are moments in here where I do feel so sorry for him at the uh, at the end, um, towards the end of the episode when he is in Commander Sherrod or commander captain sheridan's office uh with and garibaldi is there and londo he turns as he leaves and he says good day and then tilts his head a little bit and says to the both of you looking at, at garibaldi the just the look on peter jurisic's face was perfect you could tell he was just so hurt at, you know sitting there at the bar waiting for garibaldi his one good friend who didn't come i just i couldn't help but feel for him but at the same time I, I just kept, you know, raging at him in my head going, you're bringing this on yourself. You have done mm-hmm. all of these things. You are the architect of your own downfall here when it comes to your your only friends. So, so it yeah, I feel bad for him, but I'm mad at him at the same time. And I just love a show that can create such contradictory feelings in me and have them both be so gosh darn strong. Mm-hmm. My good, dear friend, Mr. Garibaldi. You know, um, and, and, and and when we get to this point and uh, Garibaldi's not happy to be with Londo, um, really not happy at first when um, it looks like Londo's getting ready to slip him a bribe and is still mm-hmm. not thrilled about this, uh, you know, the settling up. I'll get you a receipt and all this stuff. You know, the interplay between londo and garibaldi were some of the most delightful parts of the first season 
And I do love that ending bit when, you know, there's been all kinds of tension, but Babylon 5 is intended to keep the peace, plus it is this spinning space can that everybody's sort of got to live with each other on, at least for now. So when at the end, Londo and Garibaldi do have that chemically inoffensive drink together, and Londo says... It's good to ha- it's good to have friends while we can. Or what? How does that line go? I can't remember. Um, You're sp- close. I can't yeah. remember it exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of sympathize with Garibaldi for wanting to have that brief moment of normality and camaraderie. It's 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 pra- it's it's practically camaraderie there at the end. Londo did Garibaldi and the Earth Alliance a solid by not uh, pressing charges. They know this is not going to last, but what the hell let's be let's let's be cordial with each other for just for now and that, i thought that was touching did you also think that maybe garibaldi after interacting with londo as much as he did in this episode do you think that maybe he saw how upset about this and conflicted londo felt and thought that maybe if he you know reached out and kept the lines of communication open with londo that perhaps that might even help smooth things out down the road maybe not get him to change his mind about stuff but but just you know we've seen in the past how londo can be you know kind of a, a stroppy child and you know when he gets upset just closes down and doesn't talk to anybody and Garibaldi has witnessed that before so I'm, I'm wondering if there's also a little part of of Garibaldi as you know he's he's a little bit wise and recognizes that he doesn't want to cut things off with Lando because down the road that could be a bad thing too yeah that that would be the security chief thinking certainly mm-hmm. uh thinking in that in those terms of uh trying to find that balance yeah I don't know that that's in the text but I think you could certainly read that into it Headcanon <laughs> developed. Headcanon, head, <laughs> plausible headcanon too. Yeah, I could, I could, uh, I could, get, I could get behind that. I'm not sure that it's totally there, but, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think the body language in the scene before that, when Sheridan and Garibaldi and Malari are together and they're talking about what's going to happen, Sheridan's practically subservient to Londo. Um, you know, re- you, you, I know you'd want to do this, but it'd be a good idea if you held off. And Sheridan's, cl- you know, clearly relieved when Londo says, "Yeah, we're not going to make that big a deal of it. Um, well, I think part of that's the fact that Sheridan's trying to um, create some kind of support for the Narn under Londo's nose, but it's there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of Sheridan and Delenn, let's sort of bring them into this. Jakar goes to them looking for help. Um, at no point have we seen Londo going to them for help. Um, he clearly doesn't think he needs it. And, of course, he's got the space mob on his side. So why why would he need to? But um, Jakar goes to Sheridan and Delin, asks for help, and both of them are in a position to do not a whole lot. Sheridan and Delenn both point out that uh, Jakar's not always been the um, best of playmates, and neither of them have a great deal of influence on their governments at this time. Do they? I mean, we've been complaining a little bit this season about uh, since Delenn's transformation and the reception that she's gotten from the Minbari that she's been looking weaker. 
Uh, she seemed to get a little bit of that strength back in All Alone at the Night, but do Sheridan and Delenn look like leading characters, strong characters at this point in time? I I think that I think Sheridan looks like he looks more like a middleman, like he's middle management. Yeah, he's at this trapped point. more than yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas Delenn, I think she just is back to looking weak. Even uh, you mentioned body language in the in that other scene. Her body language when she was talking to Sheridan about this was just she looked deflated. She seemed very yeah. upset, realizing I think that had she not gone through this transformation and and sort of lost her position, and you know was thinking back to oh gosh those good old days when I was on the uh, when I was on, when I was on the Great Council and and uh, you know I had so much power. Maybe she would have been able to do something then, and now she can't. And I think that she's. She's just she does appear as a weak character at this point because of of all of that. And it she I, I think the reason that she seemed so strong in the last one when she had that, that you know, brief, it, it, there was something very specific that she was able to kind of grasp onto and say, I understand this situation. I am in a position to do something about it. So she took the bull by the horns and was really kick ass and it was awesome. In this case, she's back to this is a much more far reaching issue. So she can't just hop in a little ship and go out and shoot it down or, or you know, yell at it out of the sky. And so she is she is looking like she's a much weaker character and is not happy about that, I think. Yeah, there's, um, again, same same kind of thing. Uh, Sheridan, I feel like it's not so much that he's a poor leader or anything like that, as much as he is kind of trapped between six different things, or he's juggling six different things. And um, especially since the reveal at the end of All Alone in the Night, that he's actually um, working a essentially against the current earth government in in secret you know he's um he's got all those balls in the air and he is doing his darndest to try and make sure that the narn one lands safely without letting any of the others fall either so for him it's not so much weakness as um as just where he is at the moment delenn is showing weakness but i think at this point she is finally realizing just how much she's lost by going through this transformation. We've seen bits of it here and there as various Mimbari and higher and higher levels have gradually been telling her, we don't know who you are anymore. We don't know what you are anymore. Um, We don't know how you fit in with uh, our society anymore or our structure. And their answer uh, last episode was to kick her out of the ruling body. She is no longer Great Council. Uh, They let her go back to Babylon 5, but she knows that that was something she essentially had to beg for. Uh, she didn't even have, if they had chosen to keep her at on Homeworld, she would have had to do it. And now she is realizing just how little power she has left and the consequences of that. She's, she's if, Londo now. She is totally Londo now. She is a joke to her own government. Wow. Yeah. And I think, I think that's finally, finally hitting her full in the face where before it was somewhat theoretical or it was a chess game that if she thought she could stay ahead so many moves that she'd be okay. And now she's realizing she's not. Yeah. So, I mean, she won't even look Jakar in the eye in, in that episode where they tell uh, Jakar what they can do. She, she managed, she doesn't look him in the face, but like once. Yeah. She can't even do that because she's embarrassed. She can't tell them. Well, and she can't tell them why either. She never told anyone that she was great counsel before. They don't know why she is suddenly acting like this. They've got no clue. That's a good point. And I hadn't thought about that. And she that. can't share. That's a good point. 
This reminds me in a way of first season episode by any means necessary when Sinclair is having problems at every point um, dealing with Jakar and Londo and the dock workers guild and all that. And, you know, at the very end of it, he's able to work out a solution and he wins and he accomplished something and he crashes to the bed and, you know, <laughs> commander, there's a problem. Um, where I'm going with this is that in typical science fiction space opera television, your heroes are the heroes. They are the protagonists. They make something happen. You know, Captain Picard is in charge and his authority is rarely questioned and his potency is rarely questioned. Right now, I'm not seeing the only character in Babylon 5 who appears to be holding all the cards is Londo. And he's not really happy about it. And I'm sort of intrigued about this because we tend to expect heroes out of our um, space opera. And we don't have we don't have heroic leads at this point, I don't think. No, we don't. It seems like they're they're really kind of messing with all of the uh, the pillars of <laughs> the pillars of Babylon Five. All these characters, you know, um, Sinclair's gone, and Londo, which you know, who was this kind of buffoonish character, has now really sort of turned around. Delenn has kind of taken his place as the joke with her own government, whereas she used to be really strong. Uh, and right now, you know, and then we talked about Jakar changing from kind of you know mustache twirling villain to to d- defensive ambassador now and there's even a uh, kind of an interesting parallel i thought with jakar and delenn at this point um jakar when he's facing down those narns one of them says you know you've spent so much time with the humans he even talks like them mm-hmm. now and i was like oh that's just like you know delenn they her own people are saying that she's too human like so we've got a couple of our alien ambassadors um, sort of getting getting dinged for spending so much time with the humans. It's there's so much going on. It's it's making my head spin a little bit. Yeah, that's that's by the way, that's a great moment that I wanted to call out. Uh, Jakar's been Narn number one. He's been throwing his weight around in uh, council meetings. Um, he is, you know, he hasn't cared about anybody else's needs other than the Narns, unless it. As with Catherine Sakai, you know, it didn't hurt the Narns at all for him to help out. Um, But at this moment when the crisis comes up and they are at war with their hereditary enemy, because he dares to, to say that his people on the station should moderate so that they can get help from other areas... He's no longer Narn enough. He's just another human, you know? I And that's just, that, that's sort of activism in, in, a, in a nutshell. At a certain point, unless you're, uh, unless you're just 100% emotionally unwilling to compromise and all that stuff, you're just another appeaser. That was fascinating to me. And the irony is that uh, Jakar, whose heart is just as strong as it ever has been, has to defend himself. You've already made the challenge. Do you have the courage to back it up? Love that line. Uh, But yeah. And so he asserts himself. He makes the Narn do what he really wants to do, but they can't. And he gets nothing for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. (sighs) After everything he goes through, Sheridan Deneline can't come through for him the way he wants. And he walks away just pretty much having practically speaking, a nervous breakdown. 
Yeah, he's just, he's laugh crying. I mean, at the end, Stephen said, I don't think, I can't really tell if he's supposed to be laughing or crying. And I was like, no, that's the point. He's he's doing both. He doesn't know if he should laugh or cry because it's just so, so ridiculous mm-hmm. and heartbreaking. And, oh, that scene, that scene, so good. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's great. Uh, real quick, let's uh, let's make some uh, casting notes here. Um, Ian Abercrombie plays uh, Corella Mirzon from the Lumati, about which more later. He was Alfred in Birds of Prey. He, wa- he had a big role in a season of Seinfeld as um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's boss. He was the oh, voice... Okay. And he was the voice of Palpatine in the Clone Wars animated series right up until just about the very end when he passed away and uh, Tim Curry had to uh, pitch in for a couple there. And his translator, talk Paul Bloody Williams. <laughs> Paul Williams. And the, when they first are walking off the ship at the beginning, I just leaned over to, to Stephen and I said, the, uh, the short guy there, he wrote the Rainbow Connection. Stephen was like, what? What's his name? I was like, Paul Williams. He's like, I thought that name sounded familiar. I was like, you betcha. <laughs> ah, a little Phantom of the Paradise action there. Um, somebody also... Yes, apparently JMS took took the opportunity when Williams was on set to get him to autograph his discs. <laughs> awesome. And well, he should have. Um, and speaking of acting, uh, someone apparently gave some notes to Mary Kay Adams this time around, and I wonder. Let's yeah, let's let's do in the top. Much much better job of being Julie Caitlin Brown now. But she's not <laughs> Julie Caitlin Brown. Let's get a quick Natoth check, because um, yeah, she somebody told her that you know Natoth's supposed to be tough. You have been the last couple of times you've been on, you've been kind of weak and simpery. Let's be tough now. Uh, so they gave her the memo. Did she get it? She certainly approached it much better than than before. I think is has hasn't she only appeared the once? She's she's been in a couple. She's been in a couple. Okay, Erica. Uh, yeah, I, yeah the- I I completely agree. I thought that I still don't think that she had quite the level of steel in her spine that we got from from Natoth version one, but uh, but she was much 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 better. I actually had it in my notes that that she has improved quite a bit. She's actually decent at this point. She she delivers the lines uh, in a completely non meek way. So I don't feel like well I don't think she's as strong as she should be. She's not meek anymore, and that's very important. I, I I agree. I don't yeah. think that she's. I I still don't think she's good enough in the role. Mm-hmm. But uh, she at least at least she is semi recognizable as the character we got to know in the first season. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's talk about the Ivanova dance, and then we can talk about the rest of the Lumati subplot once we've gotten that out of our systems. I think that. JMS has an interesting relationship with comedy. Uh, when he is on, I think he is very on. He has done some fall down funny stuff on Babylon Five. When he's off, it just it's it's just sort of painful. And I'm wondering which of it it is this time. And I will confess. Uh, no, confession is not the word because I'm outing. Um, so <laughs> we're watching the episode last night. And before we recorded the, before we watched the episode, I reminded Shannon that this was the one with the Ivanova dance. And she was like, oh boy. And then as we're watching the Ivanova dance, I'm looking over at Shannon and she's not happy. She's cringing. And I'm like, oh dear. So I think this is a two part question. 
Uh, what did you think of the Ivanova dance scene then? And what do you think of the Ivanova dance scene now? You're mean. <sighs> <laughs> Shannon, you go first. I, I, I think I'd... You know, I actually wrote this down before we even started the episode, um, <laughs> writing down my, my, my fear of what Stephen might have thought of this um, and trying to remember. I think the first time around that I saw it, yes, I thought it was funny um, because it was so out of nowhere, uh, not not completely out of nowhere. I mean, you know, setting it up slightly with um, when Stephen gives her the idea. It's like that I can I can make this up out of whole cloth and do whatever I want. But watching it again. The last couple of times, I don't know. It, 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 for me, it does not seem to bear repeat viewing um, for whatever reason. I don't know if it's stuff that sounds a little bit anachronistic, like show me your portfolio. I mean, do, you know, do they have portfolios in you know, 200 years from now? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. A few things like that. But, you know, I, I grant that JMS took a big risk. Uh, I, I think it pays off. But like I said, again, I'm not sure about... I'm not sure about repeat viewing. Yeah, I think I'm kind of the opposite, actually, because I remembered hating this uh, the first time. <laughs> and I, I find that, that when there's something that I can't quite wrap my head around or makes me feel kind of uncomfortable or I don't quite understand, and I find this in Doctor Who quite a bit, the first time I watch an episode, I just I don't enjoy it that much because I'm spending so much tr- time trying to get used to something that kind of makes makes me cringe a little bit. Whereas the second time around when I watch it, if I already know what to expect, I know the cringeworthy things that are going to happen so I don't have to worry about it anymore, then I'm able to just sit back and kind of relax and my brain sort of edits out some of the cringing because because I've already been there and I've already done it. So this time I, I still had that sort of, oh, geez, really uh, feeling. But <laughs> but I was at the same time, I actually laughed out loud. I was able to enjoy the enjoy it for its audaciousness enjoy it for its silliness uh enjoy it for how claudia christian went for it um she was having she was clearly having the time of her life yes Yes. so i was able to totally grant that Mm -hmm. i was able to pick out all of the the good bits of that and just focus on that so i was able to enjoy it and Stephen actually pointed out that there are no subtitles for a good portion of the stuff that she's you know that she's saying and she's dancing around the, you know boom shabalaba or whatever a, a lot of that <laughs> and even some of the actual words no subtitles so he was like i wonder if some of that was just ad-libbed <laughs> in there i was like huh that that could very well be but i i, I think that i enjoyed it more this time i still am kind of annoyed by the fact that it overshadows everything else in the episode because I think there's there are parts of this story that are much much stronger and much better and I don't like that this is the part that I remembered I'm still I'm still a little angry at that that (laughs) fact (laughs) is it true to her character and does it have to be Hmm. you know I think it is I think we have been seeing Ivanova you know her hair has come down figuratively and literally over the course of season one and half of season two now. And I think that we, as time has gone on, we've seen a a more sort of warm, soft side to her a little bit that uh, certainly doesn't, you know, it it doesn't shave off the the rough edges. She's still, she's still a tough, tough lady and I would not want to cross her, but I feel like this Ivanova that we've gotten to, even just before this episode, is somebody that I would love to just chill out and hang, have a drink with and just hang with. And I think that this is just an extension of that. And maybe it goes a little too far, but I think it's it's probably worth it for the comic 
effect. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm with you. Um, although I, I I thought it was hysterical the first time around. Um, I didn't feel too cringy this time around. Although. Uh, sort of that moment when you're sitting with a friend at a comedy show or something like that, and you want to laugh hysterically, and your friend is not finding it so funny, and you start second-guessing yourself. I did second-guess <laughs> myself a little bit as Shannon was sort of cringing, you know. Ivanova puts the lock of uh, the Lamati's hair in her mouth, and Shannon's just <laughs> wincing, and I'm like... <laughs> Okay, is this as funny as I thought it was? Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just... Well, yeah, I, I do think it's in character with Ivanova in the sense that she, she is an Earth Force officer. She follows her orders. Sheridan has, you know, told her at the beginning of the episode. That was, you know, a nice, lovely little, you know, lead foot foreshadowing there. Do what you have to do to get this alliance. And uh, she does it. Um, but she does it in her own way. You know, as soon as she figures out um, a way that she can um, that she can get through this without dealing with the Lumati uh, in the way he is looking forward to. And that was something I caught about this. Um, the first time they go to her quarters and uh, Cor- Corazon, Corleon, whatever his name is, um, Cor- uh, Coromazon, he's scoping her um, her place out. And scoping her out, you know, he goes right for her her nightgown and starts looking it up, and apparently steals a piece. Um, that's something I didn't catch the first time around. Picking up that he he clearly knew what would happen if he decided to accept this alliance and was looking things over. But I do think it it is in in character for Ivanova to find a way to get it done. Mm-hmm. So and on her terms. One thing that just occurred to me, too, was that, you know, we we have seen the side of her that's the straight-laced officer. And then we've also seen what happens when she completely lets her guard down. I can't remember which episode it was, but when she basically beats up everybody in the bar because she's so upset and, and she's you know thinking she's going to quit because she doesn't want to be scanned. Uh, by a telepath so eyes there is there is a side thank you uh there's a side of her that when she lets go is you know as as fiery as her as her reddish hair i mean she is uh, she she can let go and and be uh, quite a firecracker even all the way back in uh, the parliament of dreams at uh, londo's party back when londo was a funny guy um and and she's getting Mm -hmm. drunk and joyous with the rest of them you know she's she's the only she's the one who's in her element when uh neither garibaldi nor sinclair nor especially delin are particularly happy to be there Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so i think that this is just she is is letting down the guard on a little different side of her personality she's letting her sexuality flow a little bit uh you know in a way that is misleading but but she does it well i mean that scene where she puts his hair in her mouth i was just like meow i was laughing and enjoying that (laughs) bit Um, well, uh, the dance aside, let's talk about the Lumati subplot before we go off into uh, spoiler space. As the setup for a really funny or really cringeworthy gag, uh, depending on what side of the jump gate you're sitting on, it's kind of heavy handed. I mean, the, um, mm-hmm. the the whole point is the, the whole point of the Lumati is that they are very. Wow. What's the word that I'm looking for? Um, Dense. Well, that too, uh, but <laughs> you know, they've got a, they've got a superiority complex, you know, a mile wide. You know, I I I just imagine them sort of cringing if they actually came up in front of the Vorlons or something like that. You know, to, to somebody who was 
manifestly superior technologically and all that other stuff. But, you know, they've got you know, they've got no respect for lower races. You've got to you've got to earn your place with them or you're beneath their notice, as demonstrated by the telepathic translator thing. Uh, but it's pretty heavy handed, isn't it? It is, but that's that's kind of Babylon Five. I feel like we haven't seen. I mean, there's been there have been some things that, that there has been some some nice subtlety about, but I, I feel like when Babylon Five is getting messagey, it does just sort of slap you across the face with it. And so I didn't feel like this was any more heavy handed than anything else, you know, that, that we have seen the, the you know humans as outsiders and TKO. Like the, the, I, I think that there's a, a decent history of of message fiction going on in in Babylon. Blood five and and honestly i don't mind it i don't mind being bonked over the head that's okay <laughs> i found the lamati and i forget which website i read this on when i was skimming through um the various babylon five archives but somebody somebody's speculation was that the lamati were supposed to be a send-up of um how earth behaves in star trek with the prime directive we don't get involved we let things run their course kind of thing. Um, I think that's plausible. I don't know if that was the the deliberate, if that was deliberate or not in creating the this race. Uh, but yeah, just several times, you know, watching as they interact with Ivanova, with Dr. Franklin, and so forth, uh, making their observations, I was just sort of shaking my head like, you know, I don't care how technology, how technologically advanced these guys are. They're, they're really kind of stupid. <laughs> And, you know, do we really do you really need this uh, alliance if if these guys can be so quick to judge and so quick to uh, make the wrong conclusion and base their entire alliance on that wrong conclusion? So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. The one thing that I do like about it, uh, and I do think it is too heavy handed myself, but I do like how embarrassed Ivanova is and, you know, sort of mm-hmm. second guessing herself, you know, the plight of the underclass has been sort of part of the background, part of the part of the realism of the Babylon 5 universe that the the poor are always going to be with you. And and Ivanova lays out the, the perfectly logical story structure behind why you would have an underclass on Babylon 5. People come to it looking for a new a new start and they don't have the resources and they get in trouble and the Lamadi subplot uh calls into question you know so how do you let this happen shouldn't you feel bad about it there are homeless people audience in the streets of your own home city are you not culpable in some way what are you doing to fix this or are you as the Lamadi say you know are, 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 are you complicit and you, are you taking advantage of the situation? So I do like that, even though um, it is, you know, troweled on really, really, really thick. I do like the underlying message about that. And, um, you know, Ivanova's not proud. That's actually the Ivanova's reaction to that is my the only thing that I wasn't real crazy about. You know, Sheridan says in no uncertain terms, do whatever it takes to get these people on board. And they are finally looking like they're cracking and deciding that they, you know, might be we might be more like than we thought. And she tries to backpedal and say, no, 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 this isn't on purpose. You know, she, then later on, she's willing to completely lie about what human sex means. Uh, I feel like she should have been uh, as a character. I think that she's sharpened enough that she should have just gone with that immediately and been like, yes, that is exactly why all these people live down here. Mm-hmm. We are just like you. Please sign documents. 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know how I would have felt not- as a viewer seeing 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 our hero do that. I'm not mm, sure how. That's I, point. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't quite feel like Ivanova to me. That she's a little that she's generally a little too honest for that. And you know, the 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 coming up with the way to get around the ritual sex for her is more about her own person than it is about the bigger alliance. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. I would love to know though how Sheridan would have handled the ritual sex if it had been him in if charge of the, him. if it had and been it him in charge have, mm-hmm. and it would have if he had been the one to to be taking them around yes assuming yeah. <laughs> assuming that that's actually even true about the Lumati I mean um, um, JMS Cora, has confirmed it yeah has, okay. JMS confirmed yeah yeah, but I mean, on the screen, if we're just talking the text, like right. he he seemed like such a kind of a perv from the very beginning that <laughs> for all for all we knew, like maybe that wasn't really a thing, or maybe it's a thing that could be uh, could be waived if if you know the people weren't into it or or whatever. So I'm I my thought from just watching the episode was that yeah, it's fine for Ivanova to to fake it in such a way uh, because you know maybe he didn't need to do it in the first place. But if JMS said he did, then he did. Yeah. Well, we need to wrap things up uh, and go into spoiler space. So any final thoughts about Acts of Sacrifice? Uh, I liked the couple couple of moments that Stephen was given to shine, both his technical um, skill when he does the autopsy on the uh, dead Centauri, um, you know, reeling off all of the technical specs and what they mean. And also that in the scene in MedLab with the Lamadi, he's the first one that really focuses on Corla Merzan most of the time instead of looking at Tack the Translator. Uh, Ivanova, through much of it, is just naturally turning to the person who's, who's talking to her. But Stephen, with his experience with a lot of different life forms, knows to talk to Corlin Razan. And it's only when the argument starts and he starts getting angry that he starts focusing on on Tack as he starts to lose it. So I liked those little bits. I thought Richard Biggs did a pretty good job with what he had in this episode. I agree. And also uh, thumbs up to uh, director Jim Johnston for directing those character scenes in a way where um, and it's also a good job for Paul Williams and Ian Abercrombie uh, that. Paul Williams is speaking and Abercrombie is inclining his head and sort of looking and the camera is focusing in such a way as you know who is actually speaking, even though the other character is actually vocalizing. So I thought that that was pretty well done. Yeah. And to to call out another really subtle thing, which may not have even been on purpose, but I noticed it and I just wanted to call it out. I suspect it was on purpose because Mira Furlan is the bomb. Um, But in the scene where she is... Uh, it's her and Jakar and Sheridan. And Sheridan is saying to Jakar that he's very sorry. This has to be done on the QT, Jakar. Uh, when he says QT, Delenn looks up at him almost quizzically like, what the heck does that mean? Because she's a Mimbari. Oh. She probably doesn't know what the heck QT means. So I just found that one super that. subtle, tiny piece. Oh. I'd never noticed it before watching this, but this time it really stuck out at me. And I was just like, dang, lady, you are good. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I can yeah. also just quickly go through uh, Stephen's thoughts on this one, if you are curious. My Here Stevens, comes the yes, control Stephen group. Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when it first started and we get the uh, spaceships blowing up and stuff, his, his comment was, whoa, F yeah, space war. He didn't say F. Um, so he was excited about the, uh, the ships blowing up and stuff. 
And then when the ship actually does get blown up because the Narn had helped their surveillance get away, Stephen just turns to me and like, he wasn't wearing sunglasses, but if he was, it would have gone like this. Looks like they committed an sunglasses act of sacrifice. It's just like, shut up. We are not married. Um, And then in the opening credits, he actually made a really, I thought, interesting observation was that uh, Londo in the opening credits is laughing. He said, you know, they should really change him from laughing Londo to war face Londo. (laughs) It's like, oh, that is that is interesting because, yeah, he still seems like this jolly guy. uh, And that's not what we're seeing in the episodes for the most part this season. Um, of course, yeah, and actually t- to speak to that later on when Londo is saying that, uh, you know, around here on the station, in the past few people took have taken me seriously, Stephen literally raised his hand in the air and with the other hand was like pointing to himself repeatedly over <laughs> and over again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, he's, he, that, he is the control group and he has, he has definitely gone through that transformation as expected. Yep. Um, and, and let, let's the, oh go ahead go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say in the end he did really like this episode as far as the dance scene the sex dance he, he his comment afterwards was just kind of like i don't know about this so it wasn't he didn't hate it but he i i sensed some serious cringing going on i'll put it that way yeah i i, I kind of expected that from him especially mm-hmm. after um after the the way he the way he was reacting on on the previous attempt at comedy with um, at the women's expense. So yeah, although this time I think I don't think he took it as being at uh, at the a, a woman's uh-huh. expense. I think in this case it was just that it was so so goofy. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. It really yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. Some people some uh, people have a uh, have different tolerances for goofy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I have a couple more quick things. I noticed that uh, in the opening credits, we had um, among the Narn fighters, there's a female pilot manning the ship and driving it um, with the captain behind her. So there's another race where it's just fine for women to be fighting in combat side by side. And yet she makes the point that most of the refugees are females and children. I have the the sense that the uh, the Narn still have some uh, fairly backwards ideas in that regard. Even, even I don't for, know about that so much as just them trying to, you know, preserve their race in general. Then, you know, of course, they're going to need to protect the women and children that they can. But on the other hand, there are women who have signed up to fight and they're right there fighting right next to the guys. I thought I think, it was just sloppy writing, frankly. I, I, I agree. <laughs> women and children first seems kind of out of place. Yeah. Um, and I liked we had a couple of uh, tiny little glimpses of other folks that are now becoming regulars. Uh, we get to see Corwin real fast when Ivanova uh, fakes a call from him. And Zach, of course, shows up to break up the Narn Centauri fight in the bar. And shoots the Centauri, the Narn in the fight and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And one last observation, new costume. Londo's looking literally darker these days yeah it's, mm-hmm. it's a sharp costume but boy it's it's black <laughs> <laughs> okay and that is acts of sacrifice in a few uh, moments we're going to go into spoiler space and talk about uh, future implications and all that good stuff but your homework next time is hunter comma prey that's the next one on the uh, lurkers guide uh, master list And those of you who have never seen Babylon 5 before, and those of you who first saw it after its uh, syndicated run, I envy you greatly. Because for whatever reason, 
there were several delays and such uh, during the original syndicated run of the second season. And Hunter Prey was rerun about 57 times that year. (laughs) I can practically recite this one from memory because it was rerun so much. So I have unfair opinions about this episode simply because it was, oh, great, it's Hunter Prey one more effing time. So we'll be watching that next time. You can comment on this episode on our chat threads at b5audioguide.com. We're on social media at b5audioguide, Tumblr, and Twitter. We don't do Facebook. Not that we've got anything particularly against Facebook. We just don't do Facebook. And I think we're ready. Are we ready? I'm ready. Then for those of you who have uh, who are staying spoiler free, we'll see you next time. Everybody else, come with us. We're refugees. We're getting into Narn transport. We're going into that jump gate. All right, we escaped. A Narn warship behind us blew up just so we could get to this spoiler section for you. And uh, not a whole lot, I think, this time around because we've already been going for about an hour anyway. But I think this episode's really good at signposting just how bad it's going to get for the station. Uh, The opening line in next season's theme is going to be, the Babylon Project was dedicated to to peace. It failed. Um... It looks like it's already failing, guys. Yeah, we just can't change the opening credits mid-season. So I, right. think, I think we are just going downhill that the, the failure is it's imminent. Um, and th- yeah, it's oh, there's so much going to happen. I don't have a lot to say in the spoiler section because it's all just sort of like big themes and I don't remember the specific little things. Um, the, the one thing that did jump out at me was the scene with Jakar and the, the group of Narns and how... The Narns are very much in uh, involved in, in breaking down the peace and stability on the station at this point, whereas later on, we will actually have Narns helping uphold the peace, totally, totally mm-hmm. turning around. That's yep. one of the things I love about this show is that it can do so many flips and flops and U-turns, and they all make sense for all yeah. of the characters. It's great. Yeah, and the Narn are uh, distrustful of Jakar at this point. They don't think that he's got what it takes to lead, and... And about like three and a half years, he's going to be a messiah figure. Yep, they will learn. I think there's a lot of rewarding of continuity in the episode coming from where we've been. Uh, Jakar's character, Londo's character, things like that. Something I meant to mention pre-spoiler and didn't was uh, the mention of the fact that Stephen's uh, underground railroad for telepaths structure is apparently still in place because they're going to start using that to get the Narns to safety. You know, there's that little Mm -hmm. bit thrown in. But yeah, seeing Jakar, well, I mean, this signposts for us, I think this is like maybe only the second time it's happened, but that Jakar is willing to put himself on the line to see his goal achieved, Uh, that he would go knowing he's going to have to almost certainly fight physically and defend himself and attack another Narn physically to get this done. He takes a knife to the back before Natoth can uh, prevent it. He's, of course, going to put his body and his life on the line later on in order to help Molari kill uh, the Emperor to help try and finally stop the war. So we're seeing a lot of a lot of things that support what's going to happen. In my notes on this episode, I talked about how Londo and Jakar in this episode, you can see who they were. 
You can see who they are. You can see hints of who they will become. Because Londo's, at this point, he's sort of regretting not so much what he's done as what it's cost him. And uh, in the future, he's going to regret what he's done. And Jakar is, it's sort of spelled out. You know, he hasn't, he, he hasn't made it easy on himself. He's been the heavy. He's been the bad guy. And now he's not quite so. And, you know, by the end of the season, he's going to be completely laid low. He's going to be in the Londo or Delin position of having a voice that means nothing. You know, when he's uh, talking at, in the fall of night about... Maybe he could say something to uh, support Sheridan and keep Sheridan from apo- having to apologize to the Centauri, you know. And and people were like, "No, no, no, Jakar, you, you're 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 fine. Go 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 back to hiding in the hedges." You know, you, um, Londo and Jakar are the most well-rounded characters, I think, in uh, Babylon Five. They certainly have the most dramatic arcs, and each step along the way makes, to my mind, perfect sense. And I think that you see the complexity of both of these characters very, very strongly in this episode that is overshadowed by boom, shabba, lubba, lubba. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of characters where, you know, who they are and who they are, are going to be, um, t- turning it just a little bit, I, I want to talk about Delenn a little bit here because, yeah, I ship Delenn and Sheridan so hard. So mm-hmm. the the scene between Delenn and Sheridan where I mentioned before that her body language was just she looks deflated and you mm-hmm. know, Sheridan is, is explaining his plan and she has to admit that she's not in a very strong position anymore. Uh, I, I think that his speech to her when he's telling her that, you know, government's deal in matters of convenience, not conscience. And the fact mm-hmm. that he's laying out this plan that's going to help less fortunate creatures than than him. And he wants to do this even though it's a risk to himself uh, and to the station even. Uh, I think that this is a sort of turning point in their relationship in the you know, Delenn to Sheridan part of it. Because I feel like the way that she looks at him after that and her reaction to this, this idea is is her recognizing something in him and there's there's sort of a spark that happens in this episode or at least I choose to see it that way. Yeah, it's not schmoopy to borrow no. your phrase, but mm-hmm. it it is it is that moment of sort of mutual respect and recognition that uh, you know, we we get each other. We understand each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I like what I see. I respect what I see even more importantly. Indeed. Although once again, we get a race, a, a set of characters introduced in the show. That is supposedly and we super never, powerful. Mm-hmm. Never see them again. No, Bonaba never has to never has to do it his way. And no, that and weird little lampshade with chains on it that's e- tiny and leather yes. or something. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which which reinforces that the Lumati were there just to set up the the heavy-handed social satire and the and the Ivanova mm-hmm. dance gag and really nothing else for somebody supposedly so much more powerful than say the Earth Alliance or the Narn or the Centauri to never show up again you know you, they're not that important to the story arc so you can understand why they'd never show up again but come on guys toss one of those ships into the CGI it's not that hard yeah, I mean, I mean, but no, they're off. They they went off to the rim right after General Franklin did. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, um, you know, hints, hints and stuff, but uh, nothing super signposted for the future of the story arc. Uh, wouldn't you both agree? I think yeah. it's too busy advancing the story arc. So. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And, and a lot of these episodes that do advance the story arc so much, you know, it, it, resolving mysteries instead of setting up mysteries, we're going to have a little bit less to say in the spoiler section, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's fine. Yeah. So, Hunter Prey, where I do believe we're going to have a bit more of a spoiler section because we get some really juicy Vorlon stuff here and uh, everything else, so... I'm looking forward to that one over familiarity with the episode aside. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to take off? I think we're ready to take off. Here, here. We're All ready. right. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Uh, please uh, jump into the spoiler section on B5AudioGuide.com. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, and no more salt and pepper, this is Chip and Durham. Erica and Edmonton. And Shannon and Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Spinderella cut it up one time.